This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. What's in store indeed? Lot of headlines, a lot of attention paid to Walmart and its quarterly results today. The results are one thing. What they said about tariffs and their impact, that's the thing that really has people buzzing. So let's dig into that. Matt Boyle is here with us. He is U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg. He's here in New York in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Sarah Halzak, retail and consumer columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us on the phone in Washington. So, Matt, I want to start with you. Covering earnings like this, we were chatting about this a little bit when you came into the studio. You know, you look at the numbers, you try and figure that out. But you guys quickly, being the good journalists you are, realize that wasn't the real story in a lot of ways. No, today was like tariff day. It was all that was on our minds, especially as we saw the numbers come in. They were pretty much in line. You know, sales were in line, margins were in line. So it all turned to what were they going to say about tariffs? And, you know, I got on the phone with the CFO, Brett Biggs, and he said uh, very clearly, you know, increased tariffs lead to increased prices. Now, of course, they're not breaking down what exactly you might see price increases on. And, you know, Walmart is also in a very good position. They sell a lot more food than other retailers. Mm -hmm. Most of that food comes from, you know, the Central Valley of California, not China. Um, They also have a lot more clout. Um, with suppliers in terms of saying, okay, you know, we really don't want to take a price increase on this specific item, but there are going to be things that are going to cost more, you know, at a, a Walmart in the upcoming months. There's just no way around it. I want to bring in Sarah Halzak. She's a retail and consumer columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. Sarah, great to have you. The title of your most latest column is Walmart fends off Amazon by playing to its strengths. How is Walmart differentiating itself from Amazon? I think the key way is that it's figuring out how to leverage its massive fleet of stores to help it with its e-commerce business. So in particular, it has this click-and-collect grocery operation that is set to be in over 3,100 of its stores by the end of the year. And a lot of consumers, particularly in suburbs where they basically live in their cars, are liking this service a lot. It's free as compared to delivery, and uh, they can you know see their produce and such before they bring it home. Now, Amazon, you know, it's only brick-and-mortar fleet is basically through uh, Whole Foods at this point, which is just much smaller than Walmart. And so Walmart having, you know, stores for 90% of the U.S. population lives within 10 minutes of a Walmart. And so it's just really easy to utilize this click and collect service. And it's enabling them to grab market share in a really important emerging category of e-commerce. And so, Matt, uh, taking that point, how do the tariffs and some things that they have to deal with related to that play into that broader competitive set as they're competing for, as they say, share of wallet, right? Walmart has, because they are so big, the benefit of being so big is that while they do import a lot from China, their penetration of Chinese imports, their exposure, as the analysts call it, is lower than a company like a Best Buy, for example, or Hmm. even a Target. You know, we all love Target store brands and, you know, they have uh, big parties for them all the time. But, uh, you know, the more store brands they introduce, uh, most of that is made in 
China. So while Walmart is, according to one analyst, uh, you know, importing something like $100 billion a year from China, uh, their overall exposure to Chinese tariffs is lower than other retailers, lower than even Amazon. When we talk about trade and tariffs, you know, this has been more than a year, Sarah. I mean, the trade fight, trade war, trade skirmish, whatever you call it, really started January, February, March of 2018. What's the sweat level now relative to a year ago in terms of how much more concerned companies are today? I think the sweat level is rising, particularly uh, with this uh, latest idea that they might end up imposing tariffs on basically all of imports coming in from China, uh, including clothes, shoes, jewelry, that kind of thing. I think that did catch the retail industry off guard, and that was pretty clear in Macy's earnings yesterday uh, from the comments of its CEO, Jeff Gannett. And look, I just think this comes at a difficult time for the retail industry. Uh, They're having to shoulder price increases for other reasons, too. Um, Already, long before the tariff conversation heated up, the likes of Kimberly Clark and Procter & Gamble were raising prices on things like toilet paper and diapers because of commodities costs and freight costs. And so when they're already trying to pass on those increases to consumers, uh, shoulder the increased costs associated with e-commerce, now they have to figure out uh, how to navigate this other change, too, and that's, that's not easy. And so, Matt, help me understand something, which is Macy's talked about this issue yesterday. Their stock was down yesterday. Their stock is down uh, again today. Walmart's up. What what did they say that was different? What's what's the difference here? Well, let's remember. I mean, yeah, they in in a strict sense, the CEOs did say similar things about having to raise prices. But Walmart is in such a better position. Yeah. Let's than Macy's. Let's not forget. Just in general. Just in, in life. general. Whether it's their you know exposure to food, their big grocery business. You know, they have been playing offense and have been able to play offense for some time. So investors are giving them the benefit. Well, and in terms of playing offense, Jason, I read a great statistic. Uh, According to another competitor website, Walmart accounts for 9% of consumer retail spending in the U.S. and 3% of consumer spending in the U.S. So they are just grabbing your dollars. And that's more than Amazon, though Amazon's rate of increase has been gaining in terms of market share. Matt Boyle, U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg. He's here with us in New York. Thank you, as always. And Sarah Halzak, retail and consumer columnist down in the nation's capital. She writes for Bloomberg Opinion. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I wanted to bring in John Butler as well when we talk about national security and trade and some of the other stories going on within the political uh, arena here. And that is the one of Huawei, where we got the headlines maybe 24 hours ago or so that basically we were going to block Huawei from purchasing U.S. components and really block sales of Huawei here in the U.S. altogether. So, John, I think my first broad question to you is, the fact that we are blocking Huawei, is it a national security or ratcheting up those trade tensions? So the real concern here for me, Taylor, is that Huawei could potentially get blacklisted from buying components from U.S. companies. If you look at how many carriers in the U.S. are using Huawei, it's a very short list and they're very small carriers. AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, they're not using Huawei equipment. They're using Nokia and Ericsson. So I think the security concerns are valid, but I think in terms of the potential hit on Huawei or U.S. carriers from, from that part of the move, from that angle, is not big. 
but the potential fallout from not allowing them to buy components in the U.S. would be very big. Well, and I liked that you talked about some of the individual components as well. I was reading a report earlier from Morgan Stanley saying Micron, for example, a U.S. company, gets 13% of their revenue from Huawei and sort of what are the second derivative implications of that. And I think you hit it on the head is could this now be a big boost for companies like Ericsson and this is their way now to finally get ahead in the race to 5G? Well, it could, but it's a a bit of a mixed bag in terms of the the news for them. So in one sense, if Huawei and security concerns surrounding that company continue to grow, it could provide a good sort of way for Ericsson or Nokia to edge into a customer. That's number one. But conversely, if Huawei has trouble getting components and it prompts some carriers to sort of take a wait and see. It could delay the whole rollout of 5G globally. I know that's sort of a grand statement, yeah, but I think that's that's a, sort of that's a hot emerging, take, John. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it's kind of an emerging risk. I don't put a high probability on that, but I think the risk has grown that that could happen if particularly if this escalates from here. And remind us just for a second. I mean, 5G is a game changer in a lot of ways. And I Very think, different And I think too often we're like, okay, 3G to 4G, like uh, stuff downloading got a little bit faster. But there's a great story in the magazine this week about 5G and South Korea, it enabling artificial intelligence, robots as, you know, healthcare providers. I mean, this is a quantum leap forward in a lot of ways, right? It is. Without getting technical, it has features to it that none of the other generations of wireless had. And I'll give you one example. Devices can now talk to one another as opposed to having to talk to the network Uh. to talk to one another. So that opens the door for a truly connected world, but it also raises the bar in terms of the need for security. And so people look at Huawei being owned by the Chinese government, and it's concerning. So at the end of the day, you're a fundamental analyst, and you've analyzed these companies, Nokia, Ericsson, Cisco, actually, who we heard from yesterday in their earnings coming in better than expected. Put size and scope for us in terms of what 5G means for them, what this opportunity of cutting out Huawei means for both their top and their bottom lines, potentially. So... It's tough to quantify because there's a lot of moving parts here, but I'll put it in perspective. Huawei had, of the 4G market, our current wireless technology, a thir- roughly in the latest quarter, a 30% share of the base station market. Ericsson, I think, I'm going from memory, had a 28% share, and Nokia was behind that. So Huawei is the dominant player. So knocking out the dominant player in select, say, big accounts in Europe may open the door for Nokia and Ericsson to get in with 5G, right? So as carriers move to a new technology, they're reevaluating vendors. And whoever gets in there first, in my mind, has a distinct advantage. You're already installed it's yours to lose, so to speak. So this is sort of a key time for 5G and 5G vendors. And uh, I think the latest move here by the U.S. government has to be a big concern for the Chinese. John Butler is Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking Huawei, 5G, and so much more. Help me get my feet back on the ground. 
right. So digging into this issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, an excellent story, really the latest in a series of stories that Cynthia Coons, our U.S. healthcare reporter, has been putting out over the last six months to a year, I think, Cynthia. She's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, as is Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. And Cynthia, I want to start with you. Help us understand this story in the context of, of everything else you've been working on. This relates to insurance covering mental health or not, as it were. Yeah, it was really interesting as I embarked on sort of exploring some of the increasing rates of of mental illness and overdoses and suicides in America. One of the underlying themes and trends that were coming up in the conversations I had was around access to care. And as I poked a bit further into that issue, I started to learn that a lot of the problems people have are actually with their ability to get care through their insurers. And interestingly enough, there's a law passed 10 years ago now, a little more than 10 years ago now, that actually required insurers to give mental health care at the same rate, covered at the same rate as they would medical and surgical care. And so on paper, the laws exist to make sure that mental health care is given at an equivalent rate. But what's happening in reality are insurers using a variety of tactics to deny or prevent access to care that people need on an ongoing basis. And I think one of the things that was so crucial that you said when we were talking a little bit before was these insurers and providers are very good at some of the emergency care, but it's this chronic, ongoing, not curable, but sort of you know, treatable over the lifetime that they have really been falling behind on. Yeah, that's the crux of it. So so acute care hasn't really been the problem here. The need for an immediate hospitalization for uh, a life-threatening situation, that's that's been, that's pretty well covered. Where it starts to fall off is when you need to leave the hospital, you need to go into residential care, you need to have an ongoing therapy support system, and, and a lot of those don't exist in network because the networks are insufficient. And you talk to people who call 30, 40, 50 providers, just trying to find even someone out of network willing to take them on and take on the insurance burden of trying to deal with their insurer. So even where you can find the care, then it's back going back through the channel to get the insurance coverage for it. For people who I've talked to, many many of these conditions are chronic in nature, and I think that's some somewhat misunderstood about mental health. What are the stakes, Cynthia, when you think about this? I mean, obviously, there's some obvious parts of it, but like, when you think about, and I think this gets to some of your reporting, is like this is a America's in the midst of a mental health crisis, basically. And and what do those stakes actually look like from your perspective in your reporting? Well, one of the interesting things that I I have thought a lot about is covering acute and crisis care and then leaving the person and then you get you, you're just ending up with more acute and crisis care and you're ending up not wanting to cover the last week of residential care and move someone into a, a lower cost. Um, care continuum ends up costing you another hospital stay. And as part of other rules that have been set out through the ACA, uh, there, to some extent we've dealt with rehospitalization. I don't know that in mental health that's necessarily been dealt with to the same extent. So I think in a way, while the insurers in particular, United Health, their behavioral health unit, they lost a big lawsuit. And in that lawsuit, the judge said they were considering their bottom line more than the best interests of the people in their plan. They pointed to that, that they were very much cost-cutting focused. But even in that, looking through that lens, it's sort of like, even looking at the bottom line, would they have possibly had a better system if they had actually been taking care of people more sustainably? Which, which to be fair, that they're appealing. So, But the uh, other thing I wanted to ask about is, how did we get here? I mean, there's a meta way that you can answer that, but like, there is a law on the books 
that is supposed to enforce this, and yet it's not being enforced. So what happened? Yeah, so the tricky thing about insurance is it's not regulated by any one entity. So you've got self-insured employees, and that's a lot of the big corporate plans that like over 100 million Americans are on plans like that. Then you've got the marketplace plans. They might be, they have different insurance regulators. And then you've got state insurance regulators. So it's not as though there's one central go-to place. The Department of Labor might be the one who's in charge of regulating your plan. And so for that reason, there's no centralized place collecting all of these complaints and saying, oh, we really need to deal with this. There's a lot of different piecemeal things going on. And also the law is a little bit ambiguous. I mean, this idea of equivalent care. Okay, so that makes sense. You might not be able to cap a psychiatric diagnosis if you can't cap a cancer diagnosis. That That's clear. But some of the issues with networks where people end up calling 40 or 50 specialists, it's very hard to do what's the best practice in terms of cleansing your network and keeping it up to date and how are you going to establish that? And the regulators have to take the time to do that and who's regulating. And given that's so bifurcated, I think that's some of the problem. I think some of this legislation needs, some of this needs to be taken on by politicians and and legislated very specifically to target the problems. Because I think that this is what makes it a business week story is that you got to put yourself in the shoes of a worker who is supposed to be entitled to benefits. Right. And those benefits are not easy to get. Right. It's a fantastic piece of reporting. It's featured in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine online at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg terminal today. Not surprisingly, getting very well read. Cynthia Coons, U.S. healthcare reporter for Bloomberg. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you both. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And we are just about 11, 12 minutes from the closing bell here at Bloomberg Radio. And, you know, Jason, we were looking at perhaps recovering all of Monday's losses. 2881 is level on the S&P 500, where we close at on Friday. Uh, Not quite there yet, but it's a pretty incredible rebound that we've seen in the last three days here. So sort of recovering everything that wiped us out on Monday. And to talk about all of this, I want to bring in Michael Sheldon. He is Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial. You're in Westport. Thanks for joining us here in New York. You're very welcome. I was reading a report this morning from uh, Matt Maley over at Miller Tabak talking about how sometimes after a big sell-off on Monday, you see these short-term bounces, but then really long-term, you continue to make lower lows, and really a lot of people still thinking we could see a 5 to 10% correction before we get another sustained rally. What are your thoughts on the equity markets this week? Well, there is a saying, turnaround Tuesday, but I'm not sure that really has much merit to it. Um, in general, we think that the odds of a recession this year are still fairly small. So we wouldn't be surprised to see the markets fairly choppy over the next few weeks. The big issue out there is the trade talks with the United States and China. And right now, those remain unresolved. Uh, the longer they go on, the more uncertainty that could create for both consumers and businesses. But the other thing to consider for investors, if you're a long-term investor and you're diversified, meaning you have the appropriate amount of fixed income and equities, that should help you ride out the inevitable bumps, ups and downs in the markets that come with investing. And I think it's important to point out that since 1990, 
the equity markets have seen three or more 5% pullbacks in a year. So this year, as of we're now on May 15th or so, we haven't had a 5% pullback. We came close earlier this week. We were down about 4.5% after Monday, but now the markets have bounced back. So I think as investors, you need to expect some volatility from time to time, which comes with investing. I think Jason Michael was listening to our segment with Dave Wilson 30 minutes ago, who said the same thing, that typically we see about 5% pullbacks. We haven't gotten one yet this year. Or maybe Dave Wilson was listening to Michael Sheldon. Mm. Think about that for a second. Um, So, Michael... Given where we are in the trade talks, I feel like, and and we actually addressed this in our weekend business week show that Taylor and I taped this morning, this idea that the market had sort of taken into consideration, or the conventional wisdom, I should say, was that, you know what, this trade war skirmish, whatever you want to call it, isn't going to go on for that long. Things are going to be fine. And then over the weekend and Monday, you read some tweets and you go, oh, wait a second. How do you think? How do you time it out uh, at this point, especially given we're hearing from Walmart, we're hearing from Macy's, we're going to continue to hear from CEOs who are going to be pressed to say, are they going to raise prices? Are they going to pass this on uh, to consumers? How do you feather all that in? Well, we do it on individual stocks, mutual funds, and ETFs. And uh, from our perspective as investment advisors, the most important thing is to create a financial plan and then have the right asset allocation for clients. So we try not to actively uh, buy and sell within the market. That creates taxable events and also creates a lot of uncertainty. You have to be right getting out of the market and right getting back in. So we try and take a longer-term viewpoint. And again, looking at the U.S. economy this year, we think the odds of a recession at this point are fairly small. Right. Uh, the trade talks create an incredible amount of uncertainty, and it's going to take some time. The next likely uh, time when we'll probably hear something more more. Uh, we'll hear a little bit more, is at the G20 meeting later in June. And on a positive note, the economic data today, all three economic reports were positive. Uh, President Trump said that he's going to push off on the European auto tariffs for about six months. So there are some positives out there. And one other thing to point out is that there's a lot of concern about how much the trade talks will mean, how much the, how much the tariffs will mean for economic growth. So it's important to keep, keep in mind that trade in general for the U.S. economy is only 12% of GDP. The U.S. consumer, on the other hand, is about two-thirds of the U.S. economy. So if you look at the fact that wages are growing, the U.S. economy has created about 200,000 jobs per month, and consumer confidence bounced back somewhat. So those are all positives, offsetting the uncertainty with the trade talks, at least so far. And part of the consumer that you just brought in relates back to companies like Walmart, which we heard from this morning, Macy's yesterday. But really the key theme here is talking about trade and the impact that's having on margin with some of the uh, input costs rising. It was interesting, UBS this morning put out a note talking about if trade is sustained or perhaps we tax all of the incoming goods from China you could see gross profit margins really drop 20 to 50 basis points. Is that at all concerning to you, or are you comfortable with top-line revenue growth and can brush off, ignore uh, some of the margin pressure that we're seeing in the short term? Margins are important. If margins continue to decline off current levels, that will have an impact on earnings per share. So that's an interesting point, talking about earnings per share, because we think that over time, stock prices tend to follow the direction of corporate profits. 
So heading into the first quarter, the current estimate was for a decline of 4% in earnings per share. And after companies started reporting their earnings, the estimates started to rise. And now we're looking at about basically flat earnings per share in the first quarter. Second quarter numbers are likely to be maybe slightly down, but could be up when all is said and done. Importantly, we're looking ahead to 2020. As investors, you always want to look ahead and not drive looking in the rearview mirror. So for 2020 right now, the estimate is for about 11% EPS growth with all 11 sectors of the S&P 500 likely to, for, likely to generate positive profit growth. So obviously a lot can change between now and then, but that's an important thing for investors to keep a, a longer-term eye on. Before we let you go, I want to ask you about tech because uh, that's a sector that generally you remain bullish on, I believe. Uh, NASDAQ, if I'm reading this right, up about 19%, a little less than 19% uh, as of right now, outpacing the S&P. S&P is up about 14, 14.6. Why do you like tech here? Over the next three to five years, over the next 10 years, you're going to be an incredible amount of disruptive new innovations in areas like artificial intelligence, autonomous driving. Uh, 5G, for example. Right. And we think these are really interesting areas of the market and something investors should have a little, at least a little bit of within their portfolio to generate some of the growth that they'll need to reach their long-term investment returns. Michael Sheldon, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer for RDM Financial Group, based up in Westport, Connecticut, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. And Jason, what I really loved about our conversation is we came to first quarter expecting negative earnings growth that turned around the minute companies started reporting. I'm worried about the risks of us talking ourselves into a recession, even though the data is good. Like you said, on our VI stocks function, earnings growth through 2020, up to 13% by Q3 2020. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.